It's June 9th, 2019, and this is episode 400 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, on episode 400, we're mixing things up a little bit. First, we've got a full table for part one of our two-part discussion with Bitcoin developers Sippa and Jonas. Later, I'm joined by Alex Gladstein as we sit down with an Iranian Bitcoin community member for the first in our series of interviews focusing on what really matters about Bitcoin. As always, you can let us know what you think by writing adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Enjoy the show. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hello. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. On this episode, we'll be digging deeply into some of the most important changes coming soon to the Bitcoin protocol in the form of BIPs or Bitcoin improvement proposals focused on Taproot, TapScript, and Schnorr signatures. If you're a regular listener, this won't be the first time you've heard about most of these broad ideas, but today we hope to dig deeper. As such, we're very pleased to be joined for today's session by Bitcoin developers Peter, better known as Sippa. Hi. And Jonas Nick. Hey, everyone. Gentlemen, thank you very much for taking the time and joining us today. Good to be here. I want to echo that. Thank you so much for being on the show with us. It's really great to talk about these proposed changes to Bitcoin and uh, talk to someone who really knows what they're talking about because they're actually involved with making it happen. So we really appreciate your time. I just want to ask you both first, Peter and Jonas, how did you first hear about Bitcoin? And then how did you become a Bitcoin developer? And why are you interested in these specific proposals? Peter, why don't you go first? Yeah, sure. I think I heard about Bitcoin first in the end of 2010 on an IRC channel about a Haskell programming language where people were talking about it. And then I started looking into it. Yeah, I, I noticed I had a graphics card at the time in my computer that was capable of mining Bitcoins. So uh, that was fun. Uh, initially, I just looked at that. Price was very low at the, at the time. It was like uh, 20 cents or so. And what was exciting to you about Bitcoin at that time? It was just this idea that you could have a currency defined by the internet by nothing more than software. It was always a technology that attracted me and potential for changing how we think about money. Mm -hmm. And when did you first start developing for Bitcoin? I think that was early 2011 that I started looking at the code. I think there may have been a time when slush pool was starting too and they were looking for some changes to the code so i thought why don't i have a look and then a bit later on the bitcoin talk forum which at the time was just on bitcoin.org i think hal finney posted a challenge uh, which was uh, here's a bitcoin address it has five bitcoins on it which was a couple dollars at the time and a private key and he said, anyone who can take those coins with a private key can have them. Because at the time... And did you win? <laughs> no, I did not. But at the time, the Bitcoin software uh, that existed, it didn't have any possibility for importing or exporting private keys. So that was a new thing. So I started looking, hey, how can I hack this into the, the Bitcoin software? Uh, it took me much longer than other people who are trying to do the same thing in Java or Python. But in the end, I had this patch for importing private keys into Bitcoin. 
So I tried to get that merged because that seemed like interesting functionality. So I started talking to Gavin Andreessen at the time, who had just taken over as maintainer of the project. I think it took half a year or so before that patch was merged. But before that was done, uh, I'd already been asked to contribute and start looking over other people's patches. Oh, that's fascinating. I really like that story. And then, so have you been actively developing for this entire time? And how did you get interested in Taproot and TapScript and Schnorr signatures? (laughs) Yeah, I have. Uh, Initially, I was just doing that in my free time. And then as soon as I joined Blockstream in 2014, I was able to do it full time. Since that time, I've worked on, on many things. I think Taproot and the related things are, are a continuation of the effort uh, around segregated witness, which started a couple of years ago. You're interested in scalability and security? Yes, of course. So the primary advantages here is, is improving things we started with segregated witness. In particular, here we improve potential for fungibility by making all transactions or at least a large subset of transactions look more alike, making it less clear to the public what is actually going on. And at the same time, there are scalability improvements. They're minor for typical transactions. They're most impactful for more complex things like multisig or uh, smart contracts. Okay, great. So we're going to get into the technical details a little bit later, but I also want to hear from Jonas. So thank you so much for that introduction and your background. So Jonas, how did you first hear about Bitcoin and what got you interested in becoming a Bitcoin developer? I first heard about Bitcoin in early 2011. There was this bubble, I think, to 30 US dollars. And I was immediately very interested in this uh, idea of being able to use a money where no one can stop me and also being relatively private while doing that. Actually, I listened to your podcast very regularly in 2013 and 2014. Mm. And it was also the first time I heard about sidechains and Blockstream. Just looked it up. It was uh, episode 99 with Adam Beck and Austin Hill. So that was a really good influence at the time. Wow, that's uh, such a cool story. I remember that interview. Very interesting ideas in the early days, for sure. Yeah, okay. So continue, Jonas. So how did you get started with developing? Yeah, I started contributing uh, during university, also in the same years. I studied uh, computer science. And then in 2015, after that, I joined uh, Blockstream. At this point, I want to jump into more some of the technical details of these topics. And we're going to be asking lots of questions here. But first, I think we should define exactly what we mean when we say taproot, tapscript, or Schnorr signatures. And we've decided we're going to start with Schnorr signatures, and we're just going to define what exactly that means. So I'd like to ask Peter, in your words, could you describe what is a Schnorr signature and why is it important? Okay, so currently Bitcoin uh, uses ECDSA signatures to let uh, keys sign off on transactions. So whenever you have an address, it is, uh, at least when it's a single key one, it is really a hash of an ECDSA public key. And uh, when you receive coins to it and want to spend those, you need to sign off using the corresponding private ECDSA key. Now, the ECDSA algorithm has an interesting history. 
that it's the DSA signature scheme, uh, which is fairly common, uh, ported to the elliptic curve cryptography world. Mm -hmm. But the DSA signature scheme was originally designed pretty much as a way to avoid the patent on Schnorr signatures. Schnorr signatures were invented by Peter Klaus Schnorr, I think, who came up with this. And over the years, people found many interesting properties and things that could be done with these. But unfortunately, he patented them. As a result, the world looked to standardize uh, an alternative that wasn't patented, which was DSA. Then ECDSA followed, and Bitcoin in its early history apparently picked this up. So on itself, the differences between ECDSA and elliptic curve Schnorr are, aren't that big. So it's just a different way to sign transactions, it sounds like you're saying, right? Correct. And even more low level, it, it's the primitive you use to produce that signature. However, there's a number of properties that the signature schemes have uh, that we're interested in. And one of them in particular is the fact that these signatures are linear. What this means in practice is you can take a group of people, take their public keys, sort of combine those public keys together into a single public key. And now those participants whose public keys you have taken to, to combine can jointly produce a signature for the combined public key. This is really a very compact way of doing what we're calling multi-signatures in Bitcoin, in particular N of N ones. So you have a group of three signers and you want all three of them to sign off on something. Instead of needing to put three public keys on the blockchain, you only put one. And instead of having a signature for each, you only have one. It sounds like this is more efficient, but also importantly, it's more private because Correct. you're exposing less information. Exactly. Generally, when you're exposing less information, you also reveal less. But in particular, what is gained here is you leak less about your policy to the world. So imagine a fancy new piece of wallet, hardware wallet, software. Uh, sweet comes on the market, fancy wallet, and they're the only ones in the world that use five out of seven multi-signatures. Well, if you're going to use that software, it will be blatantly obvious to the entire world which transactions are fancy wallet ones. Mm -hmm. So by reducing that information leak, by turning pretty much everything into a single signature, uh, so far I've only talked about the N of N case, but there are ways to get similar not quite as big, but similar improvements for K of N or uh, different policies as well. So, Wait, what's K of N? K of N is, say, two out of three, where K is different from N. That's what we usually call N of N. Oh, I see. Okay, so we're just using another letter. That confused me. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, M, M and N sound too similar, so I started using K and N. Ah, that's clever. Thank you. <laughs> okay, yeah. continue. Yeah, so when we talk about K of N uh, or thresholds, you have a number of participants that you want to sign and you only need a subset to sign off. And when we talk about a multi-signature or N of N, it is you have a group of participants and they all need to sign off. And Schnorr signatures give a way to make N of N very efficient because it just turns into a single key with a single signature. But Similar improvements can, can be made using more advanced techniques for K of N as well. 
Um, it should be noted, I think, that uh, there are some recent papers that show that you can do some of these things with ECDSA as well, in particular N of N. But uh, in practice, they are quite hard to implement, require new assumptions. And in particular, if you want to have an implementation that is side channel resistant, that's quite hard to do with these uh, ECDSA schemes. You're absolutely right, Jonas. So these things can be done with ECDSA as well, but due to the linearity property of Schnorr signatures, it, it is vastly easier, both uh, more efficient and easier to get right, and uh, the protocol overhead is lower. A follow-up question on that. From my reading, I understood that there's also a way to produce some formal proof about some of the security properties of Schnorr that is of particular uh, value to a solution like Bitcoin? Yes. So Schnorr signatures can be proven secure under the assumption that it internally it uses a hash. And if we model that hash as a random oracle and assume that the discrete logarithm problem over elliptic curve groups is hard, then from that you can prove that Schnorr signatures are secure. The same is not true for ECDSA. But we're really, for ECDSA, we're really, people have tried, and I don't think there's any reasonable assumption that it will actually be broken. But it's nice to have a formal proof for these things. What happened with the patent that was originally filed on this? Because you said at the beginning, this was a patented technology that couldn't be incorporated into Bitcoin. Well, actually, it could be. Uh, the patent expired in 2008. Okay. But what the patent accomplished was that people didn't use Schnorr signatures and standardized on other technologies instead. And Bitcoin's creator just picked what was available. And ECDSA was standardized and fast and small enough. So it ticked the boxes. So it was the obvious choice. Right. And has Schnorr himself changed his mind about patenting it or has, has he weighed in on what he thinks about this? As far as I know, he, he always held the DSA actually infringed on his patent. Oh, okay. So this has always been a question that I've had because I hear Bitcoin's decentralized and I always try to understand what that means and what that mm -hmm. doesn't mean. And then you hear about like who has control over Bitcoin and who's really in charge or responsible for it. And we hear of all these protections that Bitcoin core contributors have under free speech for contributing to the repo, but not being the commercial actor engaging in it in the actual activities, which is why, the, you know, there are very strong protections for open source contributions. Why would something like a patent stop a superior technology from being implemented in a repo for a decentralized open source project? Like, I, I don't understand where that limiting fat was it just because the libraries weren't standardized like you said sorry you, you know where i'm getting at i think i do so to be clear the, the reason why bitcoin didn't pick schnorr from the start is simply because it wasn't standardized okay and it wasn't standardized because earlier it was patented if you're talking about now would it be possible to incorporate patented technology into Bitcoin or into its implementations. I'm not a lawyer, but I think at least the concern would be that we want users to be able, even if there is no legal problem with doing so, you don't want users to have to worry about, can I use this software? 
right? <laughs> the question isn't just, is this the right technology? It's also, do you expect the ecosystem to adopt it? And when there's roadblocks like patents in the way, that question becomes a lot harder. It becomes more controversial if you were to include something like that, because then you actually have that as a question, whereas the way that the protocol is right now, there's really no question about whether it infringes on patents. Yeah. So the, the standardization question is interesting. I'd like to explore that a bit further. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, the Bitcoin implementation of Schnorr, the proposed implementation of Schnorr, is leading the way in standardizing not just how Schnorr signatures are encoded, how they're represented, but also there's been a lot of development around multisig with Schnorr in a protocol called MuSig uh, that you've also been involved in. Is Bitcoin leading the way in standardization with Schnorr now? Well, there's a number of other signature schemes that are essentially Schnorr-based, but don't go by that name. One of them is at 255.19. Which is the Apple one? I have no idea, but that wouldn't surprise me. So that is essentially also specialization of a Schnorr-based scheme into a practical standard. We can't use that to 5519 for several reasons. One of them is we like to maintain compatibility with the existing public key system we have so that things like BIP32 and everything built on it don't get invalidated. That wouldn't be a terrible thing to do, but it's simple enough to to maintain compatibility. So we define a Schnorr signature over the SecP to 56K1 curve, which is the same curve that Bitcoin CCDSA scheme is currently defined over. So the curve doesn't change, uh, which means also the private key space doesn't change. It's the same prime order. Public keys remain the same. And therefore, we can reuse all of the existing encodings and, in fact, derive private, public, and signatures from the same kind of set of standard technologies we have, like, for example, mnemonic seeds based on BIP39 and hierarchical deterministic wallets on BIP32, etc. Absolutely. That's a huge advantage. And does that also mean it would be a soft fork to incorporate that? Yes, it would be. So because of the script versioning introduction in SegWit, V0 SegWit, these proposals are now being suggested as SegWit V1, the second edition of SegWit, essentially. That's right. Yeah, so due to the script versioning mechanism, we can essentially make proposals that completely change the script system or anything within that space And all of these things remain simple soft forks as opposed to trying to hack it into existing opcodes, which was what we have to do before. So two years ago, when we started talking about SegWit, we predicted that that would be one of the big benefits because it gives enormous flexibility for upgrades through soft forks. And the other two proposals that were brought to the table, the TapScript and Taproot, which also incorporates MAST, the Merkleized Abstract Syntax Trees, these are also being proposed as a soft fork. But one of the things that struck me as very interesting is that being proposed as a bundle, meaning all together, and that has a lot to do with the combination of features that bring the best set of privacy solutions so that it's not obvious that you're using new privacy techniques. Can you talk a bit about what Taproot is and how it relates to Schnorr and Mast and why these are being brought in as a bundle of proposals? Yeah, sure. So 
if you start of, from the perspective of the consensus rules, you need to start with that route. So the BIP taproot proposes semantics for SegWit v1. And a way to look at that route is it is a generalization that merges uh, pay-to-public-key or pay-to-public-key single-key policies and pay-to-script hash. In a way, every output becomes both of them. Everything becomes a combination of a key or a script. So when you pay someone, when you get an address, you won't be able to see anymore, is this going to a key or is this going to a script? It could be either, and the sender doesn't care, the network doesn't care, nobody sees it. When you want to spend such an output, you have two options. Either you prove you know the private key to it, and then you can just spend it, or you prove that, well, it was actually an address that was derived from a script, so you give that script, you prove that it is, and then satisfy the script. The amazing property that this accomplishes is that you don't reveal which of these options existed. So you can still have outputs that are only to a key or only to a script, uh, and you can't distinguish them. And when spending, you don't reveal whether the other option existed in the first place. Or if both existed, you don't either. So the effect of this is that if you have an output that is to a key or a complex script, but you're now spending it using the key, that looks completely identical to a single key standard payment that was being spent. Let's give a, a practical example here, which kind of springs to my mind. So one of the examples where you might be able to use this in the future is have a complex smart contract that involves collaboration between parties, uh, such as a lightning channel. Now, lightning channels are two multi-sig, and when they're closed cooperatively between the two parties, which is the vast majority of the time, well, that's how it should be. Instead of revealing to the world that this is a channel by dumping a big, fairly verbose script onto the chain when spending it to close the channel, the two parties who are already in communication of the Lightning peer-to-peer network could simply compose a joint signature using Schnorr and spend the public key side of that uh, without revealing that it was a channel at all. So it looks like someone just spent a payment. No one even knows that it was a Lightning channel in the first place. That's where the N of N type cooperative multisig where all parties sign. Is that correct? That is absolutely right. And that is also the reason why Schnorr is integrated into this. Because we make an assumption here that most contracts can actually have this sort of cooperative branch that just consists of a number or even all participants in the contract agreeing. And due to the linearity property of Schnorr signatures, those things can be turned into a single key. And as soon as it is a single key, Taproot can make it super efficient by making it just look like a single signature on the chain. And this is both a privacy advantage. Yeah, and it is both a privacy and a scaling advantage, right? Because all you see on on the chain is a single public key when paying to it and a single signature when spending it. That's all. That goes back to your question about bundling. There's a number of technologies included here. So we've already mentioned, too, the taproot construction and Schnorr, because Schnorr on itself 
only gives us a bit better multi signatures. And Taproot on itself doesn't do much unless you have this cooperative branch in there that you can assume is going to be used most of the time. But together, they're much more powerful. So a few other things are added to it. Uh, Merkle trees, which are an obvious win. Like when we're making these changes already, uh, adding the Merkle tree in there is a very simple addition. And it means that if you now have multiple, it is not a key or a script. It is a key or one of many scripts. And uh, it remains efficient even when you have thousands, maybe millions of possible small scripts. And yeah, this gives you a similar advantage where you're, again, revealing less to the world about what you're doing. You're still re- revealing the actual script you're using, but not all the other script that possibly were involved in this contract. So just to summarize here, in the old way, we effectively have specific methods for different types of users and uses. And because of that, it's possible and even easy to tell the difference between a normal transaction and something like a multi-sig or a simple smart contract. In the new way, we have a single unified method, which because everything looks the same, dramatically improves privacy as well as having the other benefits we've been talking about here. That sounds right. It's time for another Sponsor Minute with Matt from Purse.io, the easiest way to spend your Bitcoins and save 15% or more on Amazon. As we've been discussing, Purse's efforts to make Bitcoin more useful go beyond your e-commerce side. Well, we want everyone to integrate Bitcoin into their businesses and their lives, and we make it easy with an open source project called Bitcoin. Bitcoin is an alternative implementation of the Bitcoin protocol written in Node.js, and it's very easy to read. It's a great learning tool for new developers learning about the Bitcoin protocol. And for experienced developers, it's very easy to audit the code for security. All the modules work in the browser independently. They can be used for any type of application, large or small. You can make an SPV node, a watch-only wallet, a full archival node. You can use Bitcoin for personal use or for a company with hundreds of thousands of users. It's super easy to integrate Bitcoin into your existing JavaScript application if you just want to start accepting Bitcoin right now. It's got a plugin system so developers can add features or customize their full node. It's got a great HTTP API. It's got hardware support for your ledger and a robust multi-sig application. To start saving today, visit purse.io. And for more information about Bitcoin, visit bitcoin.io or see the links in the show notes. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. While we all know that cryptocurrency can be incredibly empowering in the developed world, in practice, at least here, it's mostly a speculative tool. A few weeks ago, Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation approached me about collaborating on a series of interviews showcasing perspectives and voices that go beyond our regularly expected experiences. Today, I'm pleased to have Alex Gladstein here for our first interview. Hey, Alex. Hey, man. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Really glad that you brought this up. So to kick things off, we're pleased to welcome Zia Sadr from Iran. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's just start with the basics. What part of Iran are you from? What's your basic level of experience with cryptocurrency? What do you do? So a lot of people know me here in Iran uh, on Bitcoin. I've been doing research on Bitcoin and crypto uh, for three or four years now. Uh, in the last two years, I've been focused on Bitcoin only. And the thing is that I'm uh, I'm a very active member in Iranian Bitcoin communities. I always talk and discuss Bitcoin on Twitter, on Telegram channels. One thing to note is that 
Iranian Bitcoin communities are mainly living in Telegram, so it's not uh, on Twitter or Reddit. I come from a literature background. I have studied English literature in uh, college. I started uh, like learning about Bitcoin and actually using Bitcoin once I heard about it in like torrent websites and all of that. So it was like very interesting for me that I could like do what I do here in Iran and get paid more using Bitcoin because like the wage here is very cheap and having access to a global community where you could offer your services for for other people and get paid from them it was like very interesting attractive for Iranians nowadays is one of the main use cases for bitcoin actually in Iran as i said before i've been pretty active in the bitcoin space here in Iran and uh like this led me to do like to interact with a lot of like global uh like people like well known and acknowledged people in this space and uh like i had the lightning torch uh, a, a couple of months ago mm-hmm. i had like I, I did the interviews with new york times with bitcoin magazine with a lot of places like coindesk and all of these places on iran and i've been very very involved with bitcoin in iran the whole time can you tell us a little bit about how Bitcoin helps you? Like, how does it help you get around some of the financial barriers that the Iranian dictatorship or the U.S. government ha- has in, in this part of the world? We have a fiat system here, uh, which is usable. Well, fiat is not that usable in the long term, actually, since we have inflation. But still, it's kind of usable. Like how much value yeah. has your currency lost in the last two years? Well, uh, I can't say like exact figures, but I know that the price of USD uh, surged to, I don't know, I think it was 300%. The value of Iran real lost three times of its value. So the thing is that here we are facing some kind of severe economic problems because of this inflation and people lose purchasing power sometimes even every month. I don't think this could be comparable to what's going on in, on Venezuela, but uh, it seems like we're getting there. <laughs> it's, it's like we're following their footsteps. How are people using cryptocurrency? What's the point, right? What, what's the point that people are, are using cryptocurrency for, if it's Bitcoin or, or something else for that matter, but primarily we're talking about Bitcoin within Iran. Is it primarily to ha- take payments from outside the country that they wouldn't be allowed to typically because of the sanctions? Or uh, is it a way to escape hyperinflation as a, you know, a sort of savings mechanism that can be tapped into you know, in a similar way to how gold has been in the past? Or how, how do you see people within the Iranian community using cryptocurrency? I should start by talking about like Bitcoin usability since it's kind of new everywhere it's like it's niche everywhere but the thing about bitcoin is that we're on equal grounds with the rest of the world and that's good for our change like if you know what i mean like we've never been on equal grounds like in comparison with the rest of the world from the monetary aspect like we had inflation we have censorship we've been uh, sanctioned by the whole world so with bitcoin we're on an equal ground with the rest of the world and this is like kind of new this is something worth noting so 
with the situation with Bitcoin in Iran is that I could say that the summary of it is like we're getting there, people are using it. I see freelancers using it to get paid or maybe pay for outsourcing the, uh, some of the work to people from other parts of the world. I see remittance happening, like families sending money for their kids who are studying abroad, people who work abroad and send money to their families, and, and this, this is happening. I see a lot of big companies interested in educating themselves on Bitcoin and studying its like, feasibility to be used as like, an, an alternative to the current situation. Like they, have, uh, they have a lot of tro- uh, troubles with, uh, with the ways they do, can, uh, they do business and they conduct their business nowadays uh, and uh, the ways they transfer money abroad. So this is very interesting that we see that big companies like from different industries and the food industries and all that studying the feasibility for using it. Maybe some stable countries like don't get it as fast as we do. Don't get why Bitcoin should be important and it should be used. But let me give you a comparison of something which happens here in Iran. I could compare this to Bitcoin like we here in Iran, we use VPNs all the time. Like I'm using VPN right now to talk with you. So people should know that using VPNs is not only to bypass like some censorship or anything. It's like good for privacy. It's good for like security and all of that. And uh, like people in Europe, in the US rarely use VPNs, but like even my grandfather uses VPN here in Iran. So this should be the case for Bitcoin. And it is, we're getting there. We're paving this path for Bitcoin communities all over the world to see us use Bitcoin. We feel the need for it much sooner than other countries which are like more stable than us. So don't get me wrong, we have still speculators. As a matter of fact, they are like somehow the majority still, as is the case everywhere. But we have a lot of people too who need and use Bitcoin. One of the things we've been talking about with reference to kind of uh, Bitcoin in the rest of the world is this concept of liquidity time. So what would be interesting to, to hear from you, Zia, is first of all, I, if you're trying to get money from someone in the United States, let's say, um, how does that process work? And if I send you money now uh, with like, let's say an open source wallet, something like a bread wallet, and I just, I just send you Bitcoin directly to your open source wallet and it gets through in 20, 30 minutes, how long does it take you once that's on your wallet in Iran to sell into local currency? So what is the time between when my Bitcoin arrives on your wallet to when you can be holding real, the local currency in your hands? Well, uh, the short answer would be like sometimes even 20 minutes, but uh, the long answer would be it depends on the amount of money. So if you like send me, I don't know, $10,000 of USD, that would, be, that would take a lot of time because of all the restrictions in the like, fiat system here, local fiat system. They're let's real. say I sent you $100 and walk us through what you would use. So let's say $100 of Bitcoin appears into your uh, open source red wallet um, yeah. in half an hour. How would you turn that into Iranian currency? So I would uh, first go and uh, check my bookmarks for the websites that I've been like using for the last one or two years that I sell Bitcoin to them or buy Bitcoin from them because like I built a trust uh, mechanism with like I, I have a trust mechanism that takes a, a little bit of time. 
So first I go and hit those websites and see which one of them has liquidity. Most of them do have. So I check the prices, which one offers the best price. Then I send the Bitcoin to them. They send me uh, the local currency in my bank account in like less, if it's like $100 in less than uh, 20 minutes. So this would take is like, this like Is minutes. this like local Bitcoins or are there like Iranian versions of local Bitcoin? It's like local vendors. There are Bitcoin vendors, Bitcoin sellers. Hmm buy and sell Bitcoin to you. They are just like local Bitcoin, but they're not using local Bitcoin. They have their own website. You could like contact them on Telegram. You could contact them. It sounds like you use the digital escrow function. Would you ever meet somebody in person to do a, an in-person Bitcoin exchange or is that too risky or dangerous? Yeah, why not? Like if it's like not um, a lot of money or something, like I know people who meet uh, like face-to-face to do their transactions and uh, to exchange Bitcoin. Uh, they like meeting cafes and crowded places. And So just to underscore the point, if I wanted to send you $100 now using the banking system, that would be really difficult, correct? Or impossible. Yeah, uh, maybe impossible. Maybe yeah. impossible. But I can send you $100 of Bitcoin right now and you're saying perhaps within the hour you can turn it into Iranian currency. Uh, definitely less than an hour. It's like okay, so take like 20 minutes. This is powerful, Adam, right? This is yeah. pretty revolutionary. Right. No, definitely in that use case, that makes a lot of sense. What, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you're primarily interested in Bitcoin. Um, one of the question marks about sort of, uh, you know, about use, especially in places where hyperinflation is, you know, taking root is do the scales of value in terms of transaction fees on Bitcoin make it harder for you to use Bitcoin relative to something that has less transaction fees, less, you know, amount of money actually need to be paid in transaction fees. Cause you know, a transaction uh, on the Bitcoin network today will cost you, you know, 25 cents, something like that, which isn't a huge amount of money, but depending on how much money you're sending, it actually can be. Well, what's the perception of how expensive Bitcoin is to use relative to other options out there, both in terms of cryptocurrency and the fiat world? Since actually there's no alternative it's not like we could use like PayPal or Western Union or anything. Mm-hmm. So Bitcoin is the only option we have. But still, uh, the thing is that we can't use other cryptocurrencies because they don't have enough liquidity. It's like you, you won't find somebody who, who would buy or sell to you. Maybe you, you, you find some people who buy or sell Ethereum, but uh, like 99% of the time it's only Bitcoin. So in theory, there are better options out there because they would have like a lower absolute fee, but because that's what there's like a lot of those options and nobody has really settled on any one of those or not no, you know, predominant group compared to Bitcoin, it makes Bitcoin more attractive to deal with, even if the fees are higher on a per transaction basis. Yeah, it's basically that. And also all the tools like that Bitcoin provides, like uh, you could use a lot of different wallets, like you could use a multi-sig kind of thing or anything but like you can't find these for most of the coins out there so right so the the infrastructure and the support uh applications that have been built around it also make it a more attractive ecosystem that's interesting a couple more questions here we've seen in venezuela that there is certainly uh in theory (laughs) um uh, a use case for a uh for a cryptocurrency that is issued by a government backed by oil reserves or by gold or something like that 
There's been talk about something similar to that happening with official sanction with the Iranian uh, government or, uh, you know, through a consortium of banks or something like that. I'm not asking you for any information about that. What do you think of uh, state initiatives within Iran? Actually, there's a lot of like confusion around these topics because this is how the Iranian media works, actually most of the media, but uh, there was a lot of confusion regarding these topics. So there's a consortium of banks who are doing some kind of like a payment system which uses a fork of like this coin teller, I think, uh, I'm not sure, Mm -hmm. of uh, the technical side. But it does not have anything to do with the government. It's like this consortium of private banks, I think. It's like mostly private banks. It's it's trying to do something different, like tokenization or like using blockchain to do some smart contracts for like, I don't know, bonds or anything. So it's not like uh, they're trying to launch a crypto. I actually saw a lot of the people here. I met their CTO and I saw them talk in their meetings. They're not trying to do cryptocurrency for the government or anything. Actually, this is what they claim. The second thing is about uh, what the government actually said. The ICT minister of Iran last year said that they need like cryptocurrency. I don't know. They they didn't say that. Why are they? Uh, why are they? Why do they need the cryptocurrency? But. Just, they just said that we need a cryptocurrency and he like appointed one bank to do like research and like some implementations for it. So this died off after the ICT minister said this about it and there's, there was nothing about it, no news about it at all after that. And then we see that this big company, which is actually mainly responsible for most of the technology that the central bank of Iran uses, ISC, it's called ISC. So they, they're trying to build a platform. I think they demonstrated like a demo for it, which is based on the blockchain hyperledger. It's like a DLT, it's not a blockchain. Mm-hmm. And they're not trying to do like a cryptocurrency in the sense that we see other cryptocurrencies. It's just like they're trying to enhance or improve the network that is used right now for the Iranian real. So it sounds like they're excited about blockchain technology that they can control. But what about Bitcoin? Like, what is the legal status of Bitcoin? Is it dangerous to use? And and is the government using chain analysis? I mean, it sounds like you're using your bank account fairly openly to exchange Bitcoin into fiat. Can you talk to us about the risks you might be taking and what the government is doing to crack down on the use of Bitcoin? There are two instances that I that I should like mention here. It's like February 2019 a draft for cryptocurrency regulations was uh, like published by the central bank of Iran. It's not approved by the main regulator or anything. It's only a draft. They said that we're re- releasing this for review by people who are interested in like giving us feedback or anything. So it was just like that. It's only a draft, but see, it shows us what they are thinking about Bitcoin it's okay with Bitcoin. You, you could have Bitcoin. You could transfer Bitcoin, send it to others. Uh, the draft says so. But the only thing is that you cannot use Bitcoin as a method of payment inside the country. Meaning that's against the law. Yeah, it's completely forbidden. It says forbidden in the draft uh, with a bold. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, 
But, uh, but do you know, if, if, are they enforcing this? Like, are they using chain analysis or are they arresting people or is this just a threat? My experience shows that being active in this space, there is no chain analysis going on for now, but there must be like something like they're planning to do something in the future once they see Bitcoin being used like on a much larger scale. The Iranian cyber police very willing to work with Bitcoin exchanges to guide them through what to do where they do in Bitcoin business. The cyber police does not block them or stop them or anything. The, the cyber police only says that you should do a KYC. Then if you like lose uh, something or you get tainted money coming in your bank account, then you have an excuse for that. They only give you guidelines and instructions. They, they don't block in April or March 2018, actually one year ago from now, some like Bitcoin businesses, websites, exchanges, payment processor, and a lot of foreign Bitcoin related websites actually got blocked and censored by the government. But it's like a very fragmented government. Like the cyber police is not in charge of blocking websites, but there's another like entity which blocks websites. So their rationale was that Bitcoin is used for gambling. And now uh, it's like some gamble, uh, gambling websites use Bitcoin and they blocked websites that deal with Bitcoin just to cut off the access for people who want to gamble with it and use it for gambling websites and betting websites. You know that gambling and betting is like illegal in Iran. So they, they, this was their rationale. The thing that I wanted to say, it's like two points. It's one about mining and one is about like a government and inflation. Main things that make the like economy fail here in Iran is like uh, massive corruption, embezzlement, restrictive foreign policies. There's a long list, but some of these much bolder than the others, like embezzlement every one or two months, equal to billions of dollars getting embezzled like all over the country by like big companies. These do lead to society suffering from censorship, lack of human rights, poor life standards, poverty, and also makes the market suffer from government intervention over like regulation. This, this is also one point which makes a lot of businesses and Bitcoin businesses like have a lot of trouble to drive. There are a lot of double standards like from the government we see people from the government, actors from the government, meddle with the market and make the economy overall weaker all the time. You're a Bitcoin user who lives under a police state. How important is privacy to you in Bitcoin? I'm a privacy fan. I'm not like the most like extreme or hardcore privacy guy in the world, but I'm a fan of privacy. I think of it as a right for myself. There's no way that they, they haven't let us in Iran. You cannot use money in a, in a private way. Like if people, all, like all people accepted Bitcoin, that would be great. Like I would be like use, fire up my Wasabi wallet. I coin join my coins and use them and keep my everything private. They don't let you with the traditional fiat system. Like they don't even let you use that much cash. We're bound to use like $20 of fiat every day. Like if we want to get some fiat from the ATM, that's like insanely low amount of money, $20 a day. So you see what I'm getting at? It's yeah. So you're like, saying there could be a future 
future where Bitcoin allows people to definitely. transact privately where the fiat system won't allow that. Yeah, definitely. We see that Bitcoin getting banned as a method of payment inside Iran is like somehow leading to this thing. The government says that we cannot use something we cannot fully control as a method of payment inside of the country. People could own Bitcoin, they could use it, transfer money or anything they want to do with it, but they cannot use, like a merchant cannot use it as a method of payment. This shows how it's against the privacy, actually against sovereignty for money. Is electricity cheap in Iran? Do you make a lot of money mining? Yeah, about mining. Uh, I'm not a miner, actually, but I know a lot of friends who are miners. So it's a kind of profitable income for some people. So we have big scale mining operations here and also people who combine cheap electricity with mining, you know, like to get some kind of income, like, uh, which is very attractive for some people who have like minimum wage or very low income. The reason is that you could imagine this. One mining device gets you money equal to a monthly income at a minimum wage. So imagine like having one device which pays you as much as you get for your work the whole month. Mining like very profitable for some people. For large businesses and for small scale mining, like one or two devices in houses and all. One interesting thing that I wanted to say about like inflation, you remember that how Bitcoin to Bolivars in 20K was like still the same when it dropped to $3,000? The price in Bolivars was exactly the same as in $3,000 as it was like in 20K. So this, this actually happened in Iran too. So it was like 1 billion IRR at uh, $20K dollar for a Bitcoin and uh, like right now, while I'm talking to you, it's like very close to 1 billion IRR again at like 5k USD. So you see that this like gives a very good picture of how inflation is going on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by Purse.io and featured content from Sippa, Jonas, Stephanie, Andreas, Jonathan, Zia, Alex, and Adam. This episode was edited by Dave and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats. Stay tuned next week for part two of our discussion with Sippa and Jonas and our next international interview focused on Nigeria. As always, you can email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com with questions or comments. See you next time.